children of the world, parents of the world, this is for you. I'm Rowena. And I'm April. We are best friends and moms to five young athletes and sisters to Olympic champions. We have a mission to inspire our kids and your kids through the stories of champions. Who am I? I'm a champion. Who am I? I'm a champion. Who am I? I'm a champion. Welcome, champions. Get ready to meet our fascinating and powerful guest, Cersei Wallace. Cersei led the snowboarding revolution in the 90s. If you go back, you'll see her in a number of snowboarding films, including Roadkill, Up in the Ante, TB6. She's been a producer on over 13 video projects, most recently the Natural Selection World Tour. And as a professional snowboarder, Cersei competed in the first ever X Games and was crowned a world champion. Cersei continues to be a revolutionary in the action sports world, but leading behind the stars today. She's in the business of facilitating the hopes and dreams of humans. She's the Jerry Maguire to some of the most influential action sports figures, and Red Bull has called Cersei herself one of the most influential figures in global action sports. Stay tuned all the way through this episode because you will learn so much, not only about how to be a legend like Cersei, but the vision and possibility of actually making a living doing what you love. Your mind will be blown. And when Cersei is not raising up young athlete superstars, along with her husband, Charlie Smith, she is raising the most rad girls, Ava and Hemingway. Cersei, we are so excited for you to be here. We're excited to bring to our crew the stories of an athlete and a sports agent. Thank you for joining us, Cersei. I'm like tearing up over here. Uh, (laughs) I think there's something about... Uh, on the cusp of being 50, that just even hearing my own experience is, uh, I'm just moved by that introduction. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, we are so Uh, excited. We have so much to jump into. Your story is just incredible and we can't wait. We have so many questions. Can you tell us, uh, did you always want to be a sports agent or kind of bring us back to your childhood and and being an athlete and converting that into what you're so passionate about and what you do now? Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't know what I wanted. Um, I just knew that I wanted to make money because my parents didn't have a lot of that. Um, and I knew that I wanted nice things. And I also knew that I wanted to participate in the physical realm. Like I was really into dance. And then I found skateboarding as kind of an angsty teenager growing up in the Northwest. And I really just discovered how much just moving my body and, and being in the physical world made me feel good even when I was dealing with, you know, kind of classic coming of age challenges. So I think early on, I really fell in love with skateboarding and, and just that whole world, the kind of nuanced culture of skateboarding where there was a very rebellious spirit really spoke to me. I could be myself. I was kind of always like didn't really fit in socially. And I did fit into the skateboarding community kind of seamlessly. And uh, I just kind of found my home and my people in, in board sports and skateboarding, which then evolved into snowboarding, a natural kind of extension of that. So, you know, I think that was very uh, natural um, in not only finding my sense of self and uh, some kind of direction, a focused direction was really what set me kind of on my path. And then while even I was skateboarding and snowboarding, I kind of had like a, you know, I was very ambitious and kind of bossy. I I was very ambitious and uh, very tenacious and kind of had this like really kind of self-motivated ambition. And I very early on started kind of managing my boyfriends (laughs) in their careers. So, you know, I grew up in the Northwest. I started doing like the Northwest series. I moved to Seattle when I was like 14 or 15 because I had a falling out uh, with my mom. 
which I'm sure she just kicked me out because I was a total pain in the ass. I was very, I was, I had a lot of anger as a kid and snowboarding allowed me kind of like a way to direct that kind of aggressiveness. Um, And so I was channeling that in a way that I was starting to see results because I started to enter some contests and there weren't that many girls or women snowboarding at that time. So I was a little bit, you know, there weren't that many snowboarders full stop. And then to be one of the girls in the scene, like kind of gave me, you know, some real advantages. And that's one thing I will say about snowboarding that's so cool, like skateboarding, you know, there was very few women and snowboarding was very inclusive of girls. Like there was always, it always just felt like I was on a level playing field with my male peers in a way that I think a lot of women in sport haven't had the same kind of feeling or opportunity. Um, I didn't really even understand sexism in sport until I got older and was actually in the business, which I'm incredibly grateful for. For whatever reason, snowboarding culture just was super inclusive in that way. And so I started doing a bunch of Northwest series. I started dating Jamie Lynn. um, And I really just kind of had an instinct for like how to put together sponsor me videos and how to write a resume. And um, so I, I, you know, I, I put my manager hat on when I was like 17 or 18 and managing not only, you know, how to put together my own resume, which ultimately got me a job at Starbucks. And this was like 1989. I got a job at Starbucks. I was one of the youngest hires uh, that they had ever hired at store number 10, which was a sixth and union kiosk in downtown Seattle. And I worked the morning shift and I just absolutely loved the job. Like, even though I had to get up at like 530 in the morning, I was done by the afternoon. I could be on the hill night skiing, you know, and I had weekends off because it was in the business district. So that really kind of like got me the resources that I needed to get to the hill and like buy my ski passes and buy gear. And so that was uh, kind of an early education for me in, you know, how to present yourself. And then once I was in the workplace, Starbucks was so small at that point, like we really, it was very inclusive. There was a ton of like information and you had to go, You they gave like a lot of education classes And so I just got like a ton of uh, experience in the business world just by being a barista in the early days of of Starbucks. And so that kind of financed my my competition at, you know, gas and car payment. Wow. So you what age were you here? You were 16 or a bit older? Yeah, I think I was like I was 17. I was 16 or 17. Okay. Yeah. Is it so wild for you to think like, you know, I remember when you came onto the scene in my sister's life, Tora's life, and what you've done with her and helped her grow. Um, Is that mind blowing to you to see what is possible? Like you were one of the forerunners in the, (laughs) in the industry. And now what, what's possible? Like, did you ever dream of that? No, (laughs) no. I think I was (laughs) such kind of like a shitty skate rat kid that like I, I had no idea what was possible, but I always had like a sense of anything is possible. And I don't know if that's because I had totally like creative parents, like they're totally phenomenal artists Mm -hmm. and there was just like a lot of free thinking. And I don't know, I just always had like an innate sense that like, if you want something bad enough, anything is possible. And I think that's really, you know, it's, it's often like one of those things, like if you'd known how hard something was, you probably wouldn't have done it. But because I just, it was, I was, I was like wanting to experience everything. I've always wanted to like get the most I can out of an experience or an opportunity And I think having just kind of that innate ambition allowed me a level of naivety to try things or, you know, I I always feel like if I start something, I have to finish it. And so that naivety really served me early in my life. And I grew up in Seattle, like, you know, during the 
grunge era, you know, where it was just like, there was so much creativity. There was so much kind of uh, alternative uh, experiences and opportunities that were kind of non-traditional. And like college was never really an opportunity for me. So I was just like, okay, I'm going to go get the education everywhere I can in a non-Orthodox way, you know? Yeah, but that that's actually just such an amazing quality to have that you and that you learned that at such a young age. And that's obviously helped carry you into your career. So it's it's amazing. Your parents, your parents sound amazing. I'm actually okay. So I'm I know we're going back, but I'm really intrigued by your Starbucks connection, because then not only that helped you um, obviously like finance your sport, but also they sponsored you, right? And was that something that they came to you or were you really proactive about that? Yeah. So when I was, I must've been like 18, I had kind of graduated from barista and I got an opportunity to go work in the main roasting plant, which was like their whole corporate headquarters. And I'll never forget it because I went to go interview for the job and it was in the technicians department, which is essentially like fixing espresso machines and like delivering emergency orders of coffee. And the guy who interviewed me asked me some questions, like technical questions, like, have you ever changed the oil in your car? And I remember I responded by saying, no, but I've always wanted to learn how. And that got me this job in the roasting plant. Like that, just having that kind of attitude, which is like honesty and enthusiasm for learning was what he later told me was how I got this job. And so then I literally was working in like this back office you know, like a, uh, uh, tech room, right. Which is where we were fixing espresso machines. And I learned like basic basics of electronic, uh, electricity and plumbing and, uh, how to like actually fix machine machinery, like espresso machines and coffee machines. And I really always loved coffee. So it was like, you know, this kind of cool experience for me to, to learn something that I, you know, I, I got another level of learning here. And then I also got in on their uh, initial public offering. And that was so cool because they gave everyone shares who had been with the company for, you know, at least I think a couple of years. And at that time it had been like three years that I'd been there. So I got a a chunk of, of uh, shares. And so to actually learn about an IPO through earning, I think it was $36,000 that I got, which my parents couldn't believe that I earned in an IPO just from working at Starbucks. Uh, It was like a multi-layered experience because I was learning about business and I was learning about, uh, you know, a public offering. And I really, you know, again, kind of took to task, like I listened to all the shareholders conference calls and went to all the meetings. And it just felt like it was such a wonderful place to be at that time in my life because I had an appetite for learning and it was facilitating what I really wanted to do, which was to snowboard. You know, I would go to Monday morning meetings and I would be in the same room as Howard Schultz and it was all in a size of a conference room. Like it wasn't a massive organization at this point. It was still a relatively, you know, small company. But I really wanted to go to Japan for this world championships. And it was like, I don't know, $2,500 for the plane ticket and entry fee. And so I wrote a proposal to Howard Bihar and Howard Schultz to sponsor me to go to this event. And they did it. They said, okay. Like, I think there was just something about that time too, where it was like, they, they rewarded me in a way just for making the effort to put together something and present an opportunity. And I, I had like a Starbucks patch on my jacket that I hand stitched on there and I, uh, I had Mervin, I, I rode for LibTech at the time and they made an actual Starbucks graphic board for me on the top sheet. And I went to Japan wow. and I won this world championships, uh, really because they facilitated this trip for me. And I think that what kind of high, yeah, it was really cool. It was so cool. And I mean, like back then the you know, let's be clear, like it was a hand dug pipe in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, I can't even remember what year it was. Um, And it was, you know, the the level of writing was, was, it was not a high bar, let's just say that. So 
I, I, but you were the world champ. I was, and no one can take that away. <laughs> I was the world champ. I was, and I'm sure I you know, they, I they just this. called it the world championships. You know what I mean? Like there was no like point system or yeah. anything. But there was just it, it just kind of affirmed that like if I was willing to put myself out there and like do the work to show why investing in me made sense. And then I came back from that and I I followed up with that proposal with uh you know, hey, look, like this is what I really want to do, but I really love working here and I loved the health benefits and you know, I was, you know, 19 probably at this point I had graduated high school and I just this is what I want to do. Um, I graduated from high school a year early from an alternative high school where I did like night school and did everything because I was never good at that kind of structured education. Like I just couldn't take it. It just seemed like, you know, unnecessary. You know, it wasn't in line with where, where I wanted to go in my life. And so I did everything I could just to get it out of the way. So I graduated when I was 17. So by the time I was 19, you know, I was working at Starbucks and snowboarding full time. And so after world championships, I came back and I said, okay, I really don't want to give up, you know, my job, but I kind of need some more flexibility. And they essentially just offered at that point, there was probably like 24 doors. Um, they had a pretty aggressive retail strategy and they had opened up a bunch more kiosks and is, you know, really what Starbucks is today. Right. Which is like, I don't know, 2,500 stores or something, which is crazy to think about. I was at store 10. Um mm. Yeah, But at that time, Starbucks was like, you know, the largest employer of LGBTQ. It was full-time health benefits for part-time employees. So like they had a lot of students. And so they basically put together a program where I could just drop in like when I was in town and pick up shifts at some of the stores that like if someone called in sick or someone didn't show up or someone needed a day off and, you know, they would put their day off requests in and I would just go, okay, I'm going to work that shift. And so that was really cool because one, I got to work in all kinds of different locations, which was super fun and make new friends and 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 have an interesting experience. I was probably a total pain in the ass because I would come in and act like I knew everything, like I could fix a machine if it broke. And, you know, I knew everything about all the coffee strains. I was a real know-it-all, <laughs> I'm sure. But it also allowed me, like, kept my health benefits going. And it really was like such an incredible opportunity for me to continue to have resources that I needed to really explore this snowboarding thing and still, uh, you know, self-finance essentially. It's such a, um, like, like a, a pivotal break, like not just a lucky break, because it's a break that you went out and chased, you know, I, I love stories like this almost as much as I love hearing about, you know, the million dollar deals that you secure, like it's it inside, like my heart was just bursting hearing about them rewarding you for being brave, you know, I love it. Um, so that was a, yeah, that was a peak in your career. Let's, um, let's dig into some fun stories of, um, some other peaks in your, in your life. I, uh, I don't know if this sparks any memories, but golden boogers waking up with golden boogers. <laughs> yeah, this is a good story. So 2010 Olympics, Vancouver, it was my first Olympics, first Olympics I had attended first Olympics. I had, uh, well, I'm sorry, that's not true. I went to Torino. Um, I actually didn't have anyone competing in Torino. Funny enough, Tora and Yuri competed in Torino. And Vancouver was the first event, Olympics, that I actually had clients competing. So, like, I had a meaningful reason to be there. And um, I had tickets to everything. And I actually got to go really be you know, emotionally invested in, in this Olympics, which was, it was such a cool Olympics. Like, first of all, Canada is just like, everyone is so nice. Like it was such a beautiful experience, um, just in terms of like community and culture and snowboarding, like it's snowboarding had been in the Olympics long enough at this time that I feel like it was kind of a decent representation, uh, of our sport in a meaningful way. And, uh, I had two clients there, I'm sorry, three clients. I had Tora, Scotty, and Yuri. Tora won, which was like the most, I mean, you know, I signed Tora when she was 15, 14 or 15. And so to actually really be able to just 
be there with her and actually be able to celebrate this moment in a way that felt like I participated in in some way. It felt like I won a gold medal because I just loved Tora so much. And it was just such a, it was just such an incredible experience. And to be able to like, you know, go and do like the press junket and, you know, participate in, in a meaningful way was just really, really cool experience. And Roxy, Danielle Beck, who was like the great marketing guru at Roxy, just did such a good job celebrating Torah. Like everyone made signs and there was these huge things of gold glitter just because there was like a sense like that Torah was going to take this. Yes. I was just, there was just a feeling. Yeah, they were ready. I remember the gold tattoos. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And they had like, you know, gold Uh, painted Torah signs with her name. And, you know, we were in the crowd and the whole thing. And so when, (laughs) when she won, just literally they threw these entire jugs of gold glitter into the crowd. And I mean, I was literally picking (laughs) glitter out of my nose and my hair for days after. And it was, it was, uh, I, I can't remember. I don't know if men's and women's must have been on the same night or women's must have been in the day and then men's was in the night. And then Scotty, um, he got bronze. And so I remember like we went out really late and celebrated. Um, I don't remember Tora being out celebrating, um, but Scotty definitely was because I woke up the next morning picking gold glitter boogers out of my nose. I remember I, I woke up, I was, I had been out like basically all night. I woke up face down in my bed, still in my ski suit and just like glitter everywhere. (laughs) And I mean, just so much fun, uh, to a call from, uh, USSA snowboarding, United States snowboarding association, um, that we had a problem. And the problem was essentially that uh, a photo ran on TMZ of Scotty Lego, like holding his medal in his groin area and a girl kind of on her hands and knees, like looking up at his medal. And I mean, he kind of got catfished or whatever, like it was a setup, right? And I mean, here we are just celebrating Mm -hmm. and this girl literally went up to him and said, hey, hold your medal here. And then uh, I, I think it was Joe Simpson, Jessica Simpson's dad, who was there. I think it was a strategic setup, but that's purely speculation. Wow. And so, you know, they're like, Houston, we have a problem. This is, you know, he's degrading the metal. We, you know, we're going to seriously consider retracting it unless he issues a formal apology. And so I woke up, you know, definitely hungover still in my ski suit, straight into crisis comms. Um, You know, I called Scotty. He hadn't even seen it yet. And then it, it it was like two days of just kind of a whirlwind of making sure that one, Scotty didn't lose his medal. And two, that we spun this in a way that really eclipsed. It was so fun. Because it was a totally innocent thing, right? He Scotty is just a superhuman dude. Like he's a wonderful person. He's honest. He's kind. He's, you know, he he would never degrade a woman. You know, he is he is a solid man. And so it was real easy for me to like, you know, he issued an apology. And then we just did like we spun it. And he got more coverage from that Olympics because of this this controversy uh, than Sean White did for winning. And that was like, I just felt like that was such a win for us because we were able to like humanize him in the moment. It got him on every talk show and we were able to really lean into that in a way that Scotty won, right? Because of this, you know, funny little incident that was, it really was totally innocent And, um, you know, in retrospect, if that happened today, it wouldn't be the same, right? 
it would be a much different experience with what we're just dealing with culturally. And of course, I'm totally on board with like not degrading women and making sure that we're uh, respectful and good sportsmen. But just because it was Scotty Lego, it was so easy to like, he's so funny and likable. And, you know, he, he, he did the, the press tour and he got on everything because he was, uh, he had a funny story to tell. And then Tora, she was just like so easy because she just shines so bright, right? It was like she was all over everything. And then the the best part of this 2010 Olympics was that I went and did the uh, Australian press tour with her post-Olympics. And that is, um, we were in Byron Bay and, you know, Roxy sent us there and, you know, Tora and I got to really enjoy some quality time together. And while I was in Byron, I read a newspaper story that ultimately led me to my husband, who is, you know, Charlie Smith and the great love of my life. That's right. All cosmically <laughs> aligned. Oh, I love it. Well, you obviously have such an amazing relationship with your athletes, which I'm sure is a huge part of um, your success and, and their success. I would love for you to talk about what attributes do you see in the athletes that are that are successful? And I'm not saying necessarily successful in their sport. And maybe it it is equally the same. Like if they're successful in their sport, they can be successful with sponsorships and stuff like that. But I guess my question is, do you sometimes see they may not necessarily be the top of their sport, but they get a ton of sponsorships? And if so, what is it? Do they have, are they kind? Are they good on social media? Or what do you think really um, helps an athlete be successful in the sponsorship world? Yeah, I mean, I think action sports is really unique in that you it's not just competitive results that define success. And I guess that's probably similar in most sports in that like you have to be interesting. You can win everything, but you're not going to get like the great endorsements unless you have, you know, are likable or attractive or all of the, you know, boxes that kind of the traditional marketing or or brands, you know, identify as as interesting fits for sponsorship. I think that you know, I I have represented a lot of athletes in my career. And and the one thing that I really learned and and I'm really reflecting on at this stage in my life is that I don't care about how winning an athlete is as much as I care about their ability and interest in pushing the limits of what's possible in their respective sport. And that doesn't necessarily mean competition results, right? Like if you look at like Travis Rice as an example, you know, he made a very conscious choice not to be an Olympian, but what we've done together in creating, you know, natural selection and uh, our film projects, you know, have been groundbreaking in a totally different and dynamic way, which is, I mean, testament to him and his creativity and also has helped me identify like the kind of talent that I ultimately really want to work with, right? Like it's got to be kind of the whole package and that it's not just win at all costs. It's, you know, how do I, um, how do I participate in a meaningful way in, in this thing or these sports or these, you know, you know, I, it's it's hard to even call them sports, right? Action sports, the, the reason that I love action sports so much is because they're totally dynamic and it is not, there isn't like some, you know, system or systematic approach to it. It's very much a kind of holistic experience that, you know, yes, competition matters, but also so does your style, or so does uh, innovation, or so does, you know, how you express yourself, where if you look at a lot of the other traditional sports that are so like gymnastics is an example that it's like, or, or ice skating or something, or it's like triple doubles, or, you know, these technical tricks that are really hard. And it's like, totally incredible in terms of human performance, but you have to have these in your repertoire. There's a lot more freedom in board sports to find your place in it. And because of the rise of influencer culture and the internet, really, which has been in my lifetime, which is totally 
our lifetimes, right? Which is totally incredible to consider. The way we communicate and broadcast content is um, is different than gymnastics or ice skating, or it is it is more artistic. It is more creative. It is more culturally relevant to a lifestyle than it is just a sport. And so when I am considering an athlete that I want to work with, it's like all of those things come into play. Like, do they have an interest in, um, in how they express themselves that is unique and how can I help them, um, with all the resources and relationships that I have help them ideate, uh, you know, innovative ideas and whether that's in content or in physical, the physical realm, it's more about like working with them to pull out of them their own creativity in their approach to their uh, respective sport. And so that is where I have the most fun because I actually get to make a meaningful contribution in helping them realize their potential that is not so narrowly defined by, you know, the, their technique on the hill or, you know, in the park um, and more about, you know, how do they see the world? How are they as an individual unique? And what are some things that we can do to celebrate their uniqueness on top of all of the other things that they're doing, you know, in the field of play? And so I like to work with athletes that have good ideas. It's been fascinating to watch you. Um I believe that's why you and your team, like all your athletes are so successful because it's this, um, it's like psychology. It's like creative psychology. Um, you're, it's, it's about like the human that I, I see you work with. Um, it's, yeah, it's amazing. I, I'd love you to just, I want, I want you to tell more stories. I know you've got so much wisdom in you, but let's sneak in a little bit here about your passion project, um, sports management mastermind. I, don't know how you fit it all in. I don't know where it comes from this, um, but but I, yeah, t- talk to our crew about this because I find it quite, um, it's a lot of value. Let's put it that way. Thank you. Yeah. So um, I have teamed up with uh, another former agent, Sue Izzo, um, to do uh, essentially a four-week intensive sports management mastermind which is really just us taking our 40 plus years of collective knowledge and sharing that with kids and parents in an effort to, I mean, I guess it's a little bit altruistic. It, 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 it does cost money because, you know, we have to pay for our back end, but really I'm, we're doing it because it's part of our respective legacies and it's something that we can actually mm-hmm. archive and can share. Um, with people who are actually interested in, you know, what does it really take to kind of build those fundamentals to ensure, uh, you know, that your kid is, is set up for success, but maybe even more importantly, um, is able to lean into the opportunity and experiences and get the most out of it without compromising the parental and kid relationship. Because as a parent of phenomenal athletes myself, and I know you two understand this, it gets muddy, right? It's like, how do you do this? How do you parent and how do you make sure that you're giving your kid all of the opportunity that they have with a level of accountability? Because I think that is like one of the most important things that we teach in this course is how to straddle supporting and kind of managing your kid's career and accountability and and maintaining a healthy parent-child dynamic. This is really like, at least for me, a combination of my parental experience of raising uh, phenomenal athletic children and the clients that I work with and how to um, ensure that I am not compromising their accountability their responsibility to get, you know, it goes back to not winning, not wanting to win at all costs, right? And and making sure that this is like aligned with your child's dreams and not yours, and that you are doing everything you can to ensure that your child 
has uh, as much opportunity as available to them and they can really go for it while also holding them accountable to what it takes to actually be a responsible citizen and a good person. And that is where I really want to share my experiences and and challenges in in how to navigate in ensuring that you are doing everything you can as a parent. We want to do everything we can for our kids, right? Like Roey, I see you doing it all the time. You're driving, you know, for 10 hours to make sure that your grom gets all the opportunity to exposure to understand what is required to be a competitive skateboarder. And I mean, this kid's got the eye of the tiger. Like I, there's very few times in my career where I see a kid Thor's age who just, you know, he has, he has what it takes. And I think it's important that we understand our children and that we're not pushing them to do things outside. You know, you will always want to be pushing outside your comfort zone but uh, again, and I hate to be redundant, but with a level of accountability, right, that they also have to have an understanding that like winning a contest doesn't define them, that there's something in every challenge for them, and that um, being uh, a, a good person and responsible and a good sportsman and understanding teamwork and collaboration and and accountability are just as important as being a a winning dominant athlete and that you can get all of those lessons out of these things that they love even if they don't want to be number 1 and that is where i think i can really provide some insight and some value that no matter what level your kids at i can share some of that that is going to allow you as a parent and and the kids to understand what is required for them to reach and and explore their potential and not in just in sport but in life. So yeah, sportsmanagementmastermind.com. Uh I do have a code. It's just SMM. You can go register online. Uh it starts on Tuesday at 4:30 Pacific. And um, also for any any kids who and parents who uh, are not in a financial situation to make the investment, please DM me. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Circe Snow, C-I-R-C-E-S-N-O-W. DM me and we'll find a way to get you in. Um, also any BIPOC kids. It's really important to me that as we develop our programming uh, within Sports Management Mastermind, and sk- and snowboarding and surfing in particular, um, you know, we need to really do some work in creating more diversity. They really are sports of privilege. And um, part of my own um, objective here is creating uh, some accessibility and opportunity for kids that might not have resources, much like myself when I was growing up, right? So um, please DM me. Yeah, and full if- circle. Yeah. If you're interested and you want to attend and you just awesome. can't afford it, we'll we'll figure it out. Awesome. And we'll put everything in the show notes um, as well. So you don't have to remember all of that. But I love, um, I mean, it's what April and I talk about all the time, don't we, April? We're like, we're not in this to like make our kids be the best. It's literally like facilitating. It's a, a vehicle to self-mastery and then whatever happens. And I love how you speak about that in your course. And there are so many, I mean, you're going to be talking about mindset stuff. I, maybe you can talk a bit about the, the topics that you'll cover later, but I know you cover like it's a full circle, full human yeah. course. I mean, we've got, we so so our first one is like how to build your athlete brand. We have uh, Davy Schmidt from GoPro coming in and we're getting like from a brand's perspective, like what do they look for? What are, you know, some some best practices for building your own content? What it, What is it that they're actually looking for when they decide to work with an athlete and in their content landscape, which I think is really relevant. Um, we also have a uh, Todd Jacobs, who is like a Jedi mind master, and I work really closely with him. Uh, and Paul Rodriguez during Paul's most winning competitive streak, and then Jagger Eaton. And uh, Todd was very, very influential in uh, helping Jagger get to that podium in Tokyo, which oh, is yeah. like a Can you super- tell us that story a little bit? 
Oh yeah. <laughs> I got this story down. That story's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> So yeah, let me, let me finish the, the, and then we do, we have Tiffany Cook, who is like Lance Armstrong, social media guru, and is going to help everybody understand like social media, best practices, even like cadence of posting and, and how to like schedule content and like what really works for the algorithms, which is really interesting. And I really love hearing her perspective because I learned something during that class because it's constantly changing all the time. And, you know, as a parent, like advising your kid, like, well, you should post at 9 a.m. And, you know, just these little things that really make a difference. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the core of the class. And going back to the Jagger Eaton story, which is Jagger has been my client since he was eight years old. He's the same age as my eldest daughter, Ava, who is um, playing at Vanderbilt, won her game yesterday. And uh, they're really, it's really been fun to like have Jagger in my life at the same age as my daughter while he's a client and on this competitive path. And, you know, they have conversations about, you know, just mindset and, you know, conquering fear. And it's just, it's just a neat dynamic. But Jagger is like one of the only double threats in the world for park and street. And it was a really weird Olympics. Obviously, we got pushed out a year because of COVID and he was injured. He had hurt his ankle. He had rolled his ankle pretty good going into uh, Dutour, which was one of the only park qualifiers. There was really, I mean, that was it. There was like one qualifier and they took points from two years ago. So he was kind of like right on the cusp and he had to get like sixth or better at Dutour to make the park team. And uh, he got seventh. And a lot of that was, you know, they kind of changed judging criteria. And, it, you know, it's like it's kind of a hot mess just in a COVID year and uh, Olympics debut and World Skate. And it was just a lot of kinks to get worked out. And he was hurt. So he really thought that that was the easiest path for him to make the U.S. team. And when he didn't make the team, it was utterly devastating for him. It was, you know, this had been uh, a dream of his for as long as I can remember. And it was like his, everything he had worked for was gone in an instant. And I'll never forget him coming off that course just, It was like someone died, you know, like a little bit of him died in that moment because it was, it was such a heartbreak. And it was like the best analogy I have. It's, and I felt this way was like, you know, when you have a bad breakup and you wake up in the morning and you're like, that just didn't happen, you know, or something bad happens and you just wake up in the morning and you're like, was that a bad dream or did that really happen? And it really happened. And interestingly enough, Jagger's like one of, because he was a double threat, he was the only one in the world who could have lost in park and still made the team by going and qualifying for street. And so I enlisted uh, Todd Jacobs uh, as part of his team. And I won't call it an intervention because, you know, it wasn't an intervention, but I really realized that in this moment, this is what makes or breaks a young athlete, right? It's like either you're totally devastated and you can't crawl out from under that, or you dig deeper in that moment and go for it with everything you've got. And I mean, he essentially had a broken ankle at this point. So I got Todd involved and and he spent some time with Todd and decided that it, you know, that he was going to go for it. He was going to go to Rome, which was the last chance qualifier for the Olympics. And he had to do fourth or better to make the team. And he was, and he did it. He made, he got fourth at the buzzer on his fifth trick. Um, you know, he really did break his ankle there. He He had a hairline fracture and a torn ligament or two. But it was like, I couldn't even watch right? Like my husband was downstairs watching the stream. I'm pacing upstairs. Just tell me what happens. Cause I couldn't take the heartbreak again. You know, I, there was no way he like dug so deep. He showed up and if he didn't make it this way, it was going to be like so utterly devastating. It's like, I don't know how you crawl out from under that. And he, he, he did it. He is like 
such an animal that he he landed his his trick and you know in that moment it was like oh my god he did it like charlie's like come down here i got to catch the replay <laughs> and it was like okay wow so we got him home and that was the first time we did ankle imaging um and i was actually on vacation i got a phone call from them and it was like he needs surgery we've got 5 weeks till tokyo and so then I spent, you know, all of my Saturday finding the best doctors in the nation to essentially, you know, take a look and and see what we were going to do. It ultimately was decided that we were just going to put him in a boot for two or three weeks and let it heal, take some bone builders, do some PRP. For those of you that don't know, uh, PRP is a plasma treatment that is, I highly recommend. A lot of it is how it's administered. So you want to make sure you've got a great doctor, um, but it really does work. Um, he was definitely still in pain. Dr. April does PRP. Oh, there we go. So I'm sure you've already had a whole <laughs> Sorry, keep going. episode about that. <laughs> I really like PRP. No, no, we haven't. I want Sorry, PRP I everywhere, right? It's yeah. like your own stem cells. And so it was decided that he was going to get put in a boot and, you know, take a little bit of time off, which was really hard for him. And he just worked with Todd. And it really just worked on getting mentally prepared. Going to Tokyo was incredibly difficult. You, no friends or family, obviously, totally isolated village. It was funny because after the Olympics, a lot of people asked him, like, you know, how hard was it being isolated? And he's like, I've never been to an Olympics. It was freaking fantastic. Like, it was the most fun ever. Like, I got to be with the Team USA. And, you know, so... I think that actually worked to his advantage because it wasn't like, uh, you know, a, a degrade in terms of energy and opportunity. It was just like, oh, my God, like I'm going, I get to go. And I think it was so great to see just his like level of enthusiasm and, and skateboarding in general, you know, kind of has a distaste for, you know, organized sport and Olympic inclusion. But this kid, you know, he was just like you know, the happiest kid on earth. He got to be there. He was, you know, smiling the whole time he was there. I think there was just a level of of energy and enthusiasm just because he was happy to have achieved this goal. Just getting there was such a was such a journey. And so obviously, you know, he ended up on the podium. He's the first uh, American skateboarder to earn a medal in skateboarding for street skateboarding for men or women, which is just like an incredible accomplishment. This is not something that I would typically share, but I feel I can. And this group, I was so nervous that, uh, and, and because the NBC broadcast was such a junk show, like I couldn't even get it at home. Right. I had to go to a sports bar and I had to drink my way through it. Like I literally, you know, I think I drank like four margaritas <laughs> and I don't drink. I literally rarely, rarely drink anymore in my advanced, uh, age. It just doesn't work for me anymore. But I was so nervous because I was so like emotionally invested in this experience. And it was just like a peak moment for sure in my career to see this kid who I just knew he wanted it so bad. He was unabashed. He was he was unashamed to participate and to get the most out of the experience. And I was just so incredibly proud of his drive and his willingness to just put everything on the line and make it that far after this incredibly difficult and painful journey. It just, I just felt so, you know, much like Torres win. It was just like, you know, I won, I won a medal um, as much as he did in that moment. And it was, you know, it was quite, and, and of course, you know, because I drank four margaritas, I couldn't sleep that night. And then it was straight into Japanese time. And then for like, I didn't get like, you know, for two days, it was, you know, because he was an early medalist and it was skateboarding's debut. He, you know, in my opinion, he kind of won the media um, in that moment. So it was like, I'm still coming down from it, to be honest. That's amazing. It's uh, it's so cool to for you to be able to have all these firsthand experiences where you're literally like part of it. And um, and I can feel your love for it. It sounds like why you're so good at what you do, because you just love your job. I would love for you to tell everyone, uh, do you have advice for um, up and coming athletes? Um, I know that's a big part of what your mastermind 
class does, but just kind of in a nutshell, things that people can kind of work towards if they are working towards um, sponsorships or, you know, as a young up and coming champion, is that something they should even be focusing on? Or should they really just more focus on their sport? And kind of that kind of comes naturally, almost? Yeah, I mean, my advice is to put your child in a competitive environment or in the culture in as much as possible, right? Exposure amongst peers is what they're going to be most inspired or driven by what they're seeing from kids their own age. That's how they kind of set the bar, right, for themselves. And immersing yourself in those environments is is really like the first thing is to much like, you know, Rowena's doing with Thor and, and, and driving him 10 hours to the West coast to uh, make sure that he is just, you know, I, I remember this, this last week when Thor was at the house and him, you know, talking about some of his contemporaries and like him knowing that he was better than this other kid, but that in the competition environment, there was things that he needed to do. And, it was like they were doing video review and, you know, looking at, you know, what it was having that conversation about, well, what do you think you need to do better? Or what do you, what do you see? Or what do you want to do better? And then that gives you like a really great kind of exchange and helping pull out of them and helping them kind of register. What is it that you that you can see here that you know one you want and two you need to do better to get that and so i think that's the first thing is just exposure opportunity visibility and if that's even just watching videos or um going to your local skate park and and watching other kids or older kids i think that's like the first fundamental is just exposure and then um, you know, beyond that, I think it really is just having conversations. You know, it's like last night I had my youngest daughter, Hemingway, is in a really intensive ballet program. We had her, you know, like the studio, um, you know, prima ballerina come to dinner last night who has kind of taken Hemi on as her uh, mentee and um, apprentice. <clears throat> and, you know, she just looks Hemingway in the eye at eight and says, what do you think you can do better? Where do you need the work? What do you think uh, you still need work on? And it's just an ongoing exchange. She asks her that every day they're together. What, where do you need help? And then she leans into helping her there. And I think us as parents, that kind of dialogue is what helps pull out from them where they feel like they can really understand some of the more fundamentals that they need to learn or what are the steps that they see, because then you're like empowering them a little bit. Um, and then they can kind of uh, assimilate the information that results in a more focused effort uh, on their weak spots. Good stuff. Good stuff. And uh, yeah, I know we'll get more than a little teaser in the course. And I wanted to add to you, you specialize in action sports, but this course is for everyone, right? It is. I mean, I think it's for anyone that has a phenomenal yeah. athlete child. There's plenty of like ongoing dialogue. I think, you know, the, uh, the course we did a few months ago was really kind of more general and there was like NIL discussions um, but what we really realized is that everyone that registered was interested in action sports. So we're okay, really, we're, interesting. We're, yeah, we're, yeah, we're leaning into that in that it's not like, you know, action sports is more fragmented. It doesn't have the same kind of feeder systems that, you know, that college sports or, or whatever have, but there is no question that you can apply everything that we discuss to ha especially now that there's name and likeness for college where how to appealing to sponsors in college age sports actually really is meaningful so any 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 kid who is involved in any sport or you know like Hemingway dance i think you could glean a lot from 
uh, what it is that we're talking about, especially because we get into social and how to build your brand and mindset and psychology and parenting. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, the action sports, you've kind of hinted that it's not for the faint, faint hearted, whether you're a parent athlete or an agent, <laughs> maybe you could uh, leave with us a little bit of excitement. What's uh, you've talked about a few peaks. What's uh, it's one of the gnarliest stories that you've had to, that you've experienced with your athletes. Okay, before I tell my gnarliest story, I have to say there's one other Olympics that we didn't discuss that was really an incredible highlight for me, which was Sochi, because your Mm -hmm. sister, Tora Bright, competed in three events, which is like, I don't think people don't talk about this enough. Like that is unprecedented, (laughs) first of all. She's the only snowboarding athlete to ever have done that, which is just like testament to her fierceness. It's so funny because everyone thinks like Tora is just so nice and so beautiful and like kind of bubbly. And the reality is, is like, I have never met a fiercer competitor than your sister Tora Bright. Like she has just like this unbelievable kind of, it's like she counters her fierceness with a facade of her friendly bubbliness because her inner drive is just like nothing. I've you ever nailed experienced. it. It's so radical. Yeah, nailed it. And so I, I just want to, <laughs> I just want to acknowledge that because I think it is like it, it, it's just an interesting dynamic with her that is is wor- worthy of note that like you can be the, the fiercest competitor ever and also, you know, a really good person, right? It's like you don't have to be, you know, mm-hmm. win at all costs. And I just that yeah being her and she meddled. She got second in pipe, which is just like, which is just like, I mean, the amount of, of strength and determination that that took, I'll never forget it. She is my hero, truly. I won't either. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's kind of a testament to what you were talking about that you look for in athletes, the athletes who, you know, it's not about winning so much. It's about pushing the limits. And that's literally what she did there. I remember she's like, what else is possible? What if, what if I could do this, even though everyone was thinking she was crazy and why so many people are asking why, why would you do that? She's yeah. like, they don't get it. They don't get it then. <laughs> yeah. They really don't get it. And and the fact that, that, you know, especially the Australian media, which, you know, is, is just brutal. Didn't celebrate that more is just uh, all the more reason I feel the need to celebrate it here because it really was just completely and utterly radical and, and testament to your family. Like, wow. Um, and then Yuri, my other client who I'd worked with since he was, you know, I don't know, 18 or 19. And he like really picked me out for whatever reason he was drawn to me. And he was like, I want you to be my agent. He won. And that was just like between Torah, you know, having this phenomenal experience and then Yuri winning, it was just like, you know, in that moment I had, you know, I schlepped my one-year-old daughter Hemingway to Sochi. You know, everyone was like, I think Wasserman, you know, the agency that I work for put out like an extra insurance policy on me because there was like fear of conflict, you know, and Yuri won a million dollars bonus that I had negotiated for him with Quicksilver. So it was just like... It was just, you know, a major peak moment. Uh, And I jumped the corral with his family and was like in the winner circle, you know, like totally inappropriately. Um, So, yeah. And, and, and just one thing I wanted to share there is uh, I, as a woman and as a mother, uh, I have really been challenged by like work-life balance for my whole career. Like I think Ava probably has some inherent resentment for how much I worked during her childhood. Um, But in all of that, I've also really found it. I feel like I finally cracked it in how, how to be a good mom and a fully engaged mother and a really good executive and and sports agent 
And I have a lot of gratitude for the agency that I work with that has really let me develop my book of business on my terms. And I can, I, I can work remotely when I want to. And I put my family first in a way. And any athlete that I work with understands that. And it's like the first thing that I share with them is like, hey, look, I'm really interested in working with you, but you need to know one thing. And that is that my kids come first always and forever. If I am on a call with you and my kid calls or needs me, I'm going to hang up with you and answer that call. And there's something about that that has allowed me to attract a more interesting client base. And so I think that's really important, especially for mothers and listeners here that you can have both, but prioritizing your family and your motherhood actually can be a benefit to um, the other aspects of your business life that I know you all are pursuing. And then to answer your question about the most traumatic experience, you know, I've had a few, but I would say, you know, I, I, I've, I've really early on was really like heartbroken anytime a client would fire me. You know, it was like, I take it on so emotionally that like, I remember, you know, I represented Eric Costin for a while and he fired me. And I mean, it just absolutely broke my heart. It was like, it really was like a breakup because I just respected him so much. And I really knew that I brought him a lot of value. And it was like, skateboarding fired me in that moment, you know, and that was really hard for me to recover from. Um, now, because I only take clients on my own terms, I, I'm not so emotionally tied up on it in it, but that was really, really difficult for me emotionally. And I was also a lot younger. And then in the physical realm, uh, you know, Yuri's crash at X Games just right before Korea, um, he had like a winning run at X Games and he fell just on an alley-oop trick at the bottom, like literally after the finish line. And he had a pretty severe TBI. And in that moment, like I didn't know, like I thought he could have died. Like it was, and I was right there at the bottom of the pipe and, you know, getting the medivaced out of there essentially to the trauma center. And and then, you know, the the subsequent days, and, you know, he had been spending a bunch of time with us when we were there and Hemingway and him are really close and have like kind of a beautiful friendship. And she watched it and it was just so traumatic for all of us. Oh, gosh, it was like just in that moment, um, I would say probably the most traumatic experience. And and then, you know, I go into fix it mode and got him with the best, you know, uh, um, neuro doctors and, and, you know, got them straight to LA to the best doctors. And, and again, like so much gratitude for the agency that I work with and, and, and Casey Wasserman and the, and the resources that I have at my disposal to really help my clients in those moments at a level that I think is truly unprecedented. Like I have full access to, you know, uh, um, resources that many, you know, would never have the chance to, to have, uh, relationships or opportunities with. So, you know, I would just say like, you know, as a woman and as a mother, like I love my clients. Like I tell them I love them, you know, like, Hey, I love you. You know, life is short. We don't know how much time we have. Anything can happen. We can get hit by a bus or die of COVID. And so uh, in the human exchange in my work now, it is really tied up in, in a, a, a level of emotion and uh, deep gratitude for the opportunity to help people that I love. And I just think that's why I am one of the best and will, as long as I'm managing and representing talent, believe that I have something to offer and offer them. And then also through the sports management mastermind, a more emotionally intelligent approach to um, athlete management and parenting um, with a level of experience and, and love for my community, for the people that I work with, for you, Rowie, like that, that we get to, 
you know, that I get to participate in some level in um, your children's uh, uh, journey is just, it is, it is such an incredible gift. And I am just humbled every day by uh, the opportunity that I have to, to rise to the challenge, to be my best self in, in sharing and, and nurturing uh, humans and the human experience is, is truly humbling. Uh, wow. You're amazing. You really are a gift for anybody that ever is looking for an agent. I know that, I know that you don't take everyone, but man, I would definitely <laughs> hire you in a second <laughs> yeah. if I could. So thank you so much for being with us today. I know it sounds like a calling, Cersei. Yeah, I think so. And I just really love um, what you amazing mothers and women are doing. And I just feel honored to be in such company. Like, well, what a great time to be a woman and to be alive. Like, there is just, I, I have, I've really had a shift of like an abundance mindset. And I, you know, it's like I always say on my social, which is so funny, but, you know, I'm having all these peak moments all the time. And I'm quite sure it has something to do with reaching middle age because it's like, you know, the clock is ticking. You're at the middle, right? So it's like, oh my God, I only have this yeah. much time. I want to just get everything that I possibly can out of it. And being able to like really be in that, you know, thank you, God, more, please is what I say. And I say that yes. totally agnos agnostically. Yes. I, I, I am uh, agnostic in my spirituality, but I truly believe in uh, uh, the great mystery of, of the universe and that I am just this little, you know, floating speck of stardust and that I am just so incredibly um, joyful that I get to have this human experience. It is truly the most incredible gift that we get to have these, live in these bodies and have this, this, we have self-awareness, we have consciousness, we can mm -hmm. up-level every single day if we can continue to stay open and, and in a state of grace and, and love and gratitude. And I just am so incredibly honored that the great universe, God chose me to have this human experience. It's truly uh, a, a radical experience. I, I feel it. On that note, Cersei, I mean, everything you just expressed is exactly what we hear every champion on here talk about, the gratitude. Like the more gratitude you have, the more that that comes to you. So we'll wrap it up with that. Um, you can find Cersei, C-I-R-C-E Snow on Instagram, sportsmanagementmastermind.com. We'll put the, the links in the show notes and we'll give you a code. Follow everything that that she's doing and sharing. She shares exciting stuff of her athletes and her life and we're just honored. Thank you so much, Cersei. Thank you so much. 